I can tell you the main thing that's happening is we've created a political class that is really, they're making a career out of being in an elected office with all of the benefits that can promote or kill other people's careers in elected office. And that is a lot of power concentrated in very few hands. It tends to fester, it gets corrupt. What do you think is the root cause of this? I think greed, old fashioned greed, the only way to explain it. When they get into office, they take care of their family and their friends. That's how it works. It's like conflict of interest 101, but that's how brazen the corruption is today. In your face, they don't care about the appearances of impropriety. They're just gonna do it anyway and dare you like, what are you gonna do to me? My guest today is Alex Villanova, former sheriff of Los Angeles County. Today, he'll give us a deeper look into how corruption works in LA and what should be done to stop it. It's billions of dollars that get poured into the pockets of the nonprofit world in the state of California. And what is the return on the investment? A bigger homeless problem. We're not fixing anything. What we're doing is maintaining a very expensive nonprofits that are very profitable. Then who are these people donating money to? The same elected officials that are awarding the contracts to the nonprofits. So those elected people, who do you think their allegiances are? To the taxpayer, to the voter? or to the machine that puts them in office. The good news is, I know that with all this doom and gloom, there is some good news. I'm Siamai Karami. Welcome to California Insider. Alex, it's great to have you on. Welcome back. Welcome oh, back. delighted to be here. We want to talk to you about a topic that we've been told to cover a lot, and a lot of our audience want to hear about, is corruption in LA. And unfortunately, corruption has become a thing and a bigger thing that when I came to this country, one of the things I really appreciated, you know, it wasn't, the corruption existed here and there, but I don't think it was like, it's not, it's not rooted in the country, it's not in the system, deep in the system. But somehow things are changing here. And uh, can you tell us what's happening in LA? You've seen examples of this. Well, I can tell you the main thing that's happening is we've created a political class, entrenched political class that uh, is really, they're making a career out of being in an elected office with all of the benefits that entails them, which is access to power, access to resources, decision-making that can promote or kill other people's careers in elected office. And that is a lot of power concentrated in very few hands. And when that power doesn't change hands frequently, well, it tends to fester, it gets corrupt. And uh, well, right now, they say sunlight is the best disinfectant. So we need to pull the curtains back. We need to let the sun in. So people start realizing that our main problem is with politicians, the political class. They're the ones that have destroyed LA as we know it in terms of, you name it, homelessness. You talk about crime. You're talking about pollution. You're talking about economic opportunity, the regulatory environment, which businesses can thrive or die on the vine, as we're seeing all of that boils down to decisions from policymakers, elected politicians who are looking out for their own personal interest, not for the average person on the street. Alex, you mentioned that there is a, there's a political class. So they have been in these positions for many years, right? And they go from one to another, right? Oh yes, that's how they work. And they, when they get into office, they take care of their family and their friends. That's how it works, a classic example is former supervisor Sheila Kuehl. She gets into office elected as supervisor. She came from the state legislature, career politician, 
and she appoints Patty Giggins to the Civilian Oversight Commission that provides oversight to the Sheriff's Department. But she had granted her a sole source contract to her nonprofit called Peace Over Violence. And the Peace Over Violence nonprofit was basically, they were going to establish a hotline for people who were victims of sexual harassment on the trains and buses to report. But what they were doing, they were charging every phone call $8,000 a minute. Wow. And this, uh, an internal, an employee of the MTA came to the Sheriff's Department and made a complaint. Hey, this, I think the taxpayers are being ripped off by this. And so we took, a, we have a public corruption unit that I created. We looked at it, we did an investigation, we invited in the Attorney General, we invited in the FBI, and there's a lot of substance to this. And we determined, yeah, it looks like a crime has occurred, and the I think the taxpayers are out about eight or $900,000 in this, this uh, bogus contract with Peace Over Violence. And so the matter is now in the hands of the Attorney General, but Patty Giggins, the commissioner, was voting as a member of the Civilian Oversight Commission on matters that directly impacted her. She didn't recuse herself, which is bizarre. It's like conflict of interest 101. But that's how brazen the corruption is today, in your face. They don't care about the appearances of impropriety. They're just going to do it anyway and dare you, like, what are you going to do to me? And the other people around them that are sitting in those commissions don't question? They did not question at all. No. And you look at, for example, the MTA Board of Directors, which includes a mayor and some of the city council and all five members of the Board of Supervisors. They voted to try to create a new MTA police department and get rid of the law enforcement contracts. And not a single person questioned the wisdom of this. Everyone sitting on the board just kind of stood there, lost in space like it was a great idea. And they all voted for it. And we know from past history, they can't create their own police department. It's not going to work. One, no one's going to want to work for the MTA police department to begin with. Now, was there a point before that that you started doing this investigation? Was it the first time you created this corruption unit? Why did you create it? Well, when I took office, we, the Sheriff's Department historically has always been doing corruption investigations. We do them a lot of agencies. Agencies will ask us, hey, could you investigate? We have a suspicion of our employees is doing engaged in criminal conduct. And we do the investigation as the third party of choice and probably obviously the biggest one. So, and we have investigators that are extremely good at what they do. So we created a public corruption unit just to formalize what we've been doing for decades. You have been doing that inside the... The Sheriff's Department has been doing these investigations forever. And we work hand in hand with the district attorney's office, with the attorney general's office, the FBI and the U.S. attorney's office. We do that as, you know, as a regular course of business. So we formalized it with a public corruption unit. And they handled 24 cases when I was in office, 24. And we gave them either to the DA, the state AG, or the feds, to the Department of Justice, to decide who prosecutes or doesn't prosecute. And they make the decision about the prosecution side. That's not our job. Our job is just to investigate. To find the evidence and then put then the they case together and they can is. decide, okay, we're going to prosecute. Can we prove beyond reasonable doubt? Sometimes we can prove it, but might not be beyond reasonable doubt or whatever their criteria is. 
That's a prosecution decision, not an investigator decision. But the authority of the sheriff is to conduct the investigations. So the local establishment, the Board of Supervisors, took exception to that because they were the subject of one of the investigations. But nowhere does it say that the board is somehow exempt from criminal oversight when they're the subject of a criminal complaint. Of course they are going to be investigated. But they assumed that how dare the sheriff do this? Oh, my God, he's only retaliating against us. They always had this big scheme about retaliation. But it turns out the board was taking all the offensive actions against the sheriff's department. Going all the way back to 2018, when I got past the primary against McDonald, they started downloading my personnel files. I was already a retired lieutenant at the time, and I had the inspector general going through my personnel files trying to look for something. And that's illegal. That's a crime right there. So we reported these things because we're the victim. We reported them to the attorney general so they can take action on this. How did you find that out? We did a uh, deep dive because when we took over in December of 2018, we were looking for, can't remember what it was exactly we were looking for. We were going through emails because we had a suspicion about who had accessed my personnel data. Then we found out, oh, wait a minute, they've been asking, going through the personnel data of the undersheriff. Anybody who was on my transition team, they went through and they went through all of their uh, personnel files, which is a crime. It's a data breach. And we asked for the emails because we own the emails, the system. And we got all the emails from the inspector general and their associates at the time. And they said, oh, yeah, go on the weekend before he takes over. Use a hard, uh, uh, you know, external hard drive so you can download all the files. That's 2,400 files. Each file is a crime. It was 2,400 of these. And they just went to town on this. And we're like, wow, this is, man, these people play dirty. And so we investigate. We invited the attorney general's office and the FBI to assist us. And they said, no, you you have the authority, you, you do your investigation, we'll provide you technical assistance if needed. That was the FBI. So when we were done, we handed over to the Attorney General's office and they just sat on it, did nothing. They just, they're letting the clock expire on the statute of limitations. Do you think that some of these people have, um, in this political climate, people have built relationships with each other and Either they are in the corruption or either they are afraid of talking. Do you think that's what has become? The lesser players that want to get onto the big stage are afraid of saying anything because they don't want to jeopardize their chances to be on the big stage. The ones that are already on the big stage are the ones that, you know, they sold their soul to the devil, so to speak. So they're not going to rat themselves out or their, uh, their compadres, so to speak. They benefit from the corruption. And I'll give you a, a prime example. I had a friend of mine, Latina, who wanted to run for city council in L.A. And a seat held by someone who was African-American. And this is a, a district which is majority Latino. So she has somewhat of a, because, you know, the identity of politics in elections, this lady had some advantage. And she was told by the Democratic Party, it's not your turn to basically stand down. So you have people picking and choosing who's in elected office. 
So those elected people, who do you think their allegiances are? To the taxpayer, to the voter, or to the machine that puts them in office? And that's the big threat of corruption. That's why Mitch Englander, Jose Wiesar, Mark Ridley Thomas, Curran Price now, for example, and you go back to uh, Baca, Tanaka, and all those other previous people that have been convicted of, uh, you know, of corruption, and it's all part of that whole machine. People get into office for the wrong reasons, and they want to stay there. What do they get into the office for? Well, some are idealistic. They want to go in supposedly to do the right thing, but they're too enamored about all the, uh, the perks of being in public office. And all you start seeing, they start hanging out with their donors, and then the, the private jets to Vegas and all the parties and all the developers showering them with money. I think that's what happened with, uh, I think, Weezer. Weezer, yeah. And he was getting poker chips. Yeah, I, I mean, it's embarrassing. And or chips, because he yeah. chips, yeah. That's sad, and they're not the first people. You know, there's a long list of people before them. Look at the people that now been indicted under the DWP scandal. Same, same concept as well. And how did uh, Mike Fuhrer somehow skate while all of his subordinates keep getting indicted for corruption? How does that happen? It's uh, very odd. So do you think it's a lot bigger? Uh, do you think it, it ties to more nonprofits? Because th th there is some people that say that there might be some of this corruption in the homeless nonprofits too. Well, yeah, well, you know, I've been talking about the homeless industrial complex, and it's not thousands, it's not hundreds of thousands or millions, it's billions of dollars that get poured into the pockets of the nonprofit world in the state of California. And what is the return on the investment? a bigger homeless problem. We're not fixing anything. What we're doing is maintaining a very expensive nonprofits that are very profitable. You see the CEO of some of these nonprofits, they're pulling in 800,000 a year. The top 10 CEOs of nonprofits, that is what they're making, 800,000. You go to the top 25, about 625,000. They were making more nonprofits than I was making a sheriff. And obviously, our our operation dwarfs any nonprofit. But so, oh, there's a huge financial incentive. You look at the boards of directors, then who are these people donating money to? The same elected officials that are awarding the contracts to the nonprofits. It's a very, uh, very uh, ni nice little setup they have. Folks, you've probably been hearing me talk about Viarify for a while now. Virify has been getting a ton of phone calls from you and I thank you for supporting an investment that actually helps people. A lot of people are talking about this investment and I'd like to review the basics with you. First off, yes it's true, you can earn up to 10.25% fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or to the Fed. You can turn your income on or off, compounded, whatever you choose and there are absolutely no fees. There are no restrictions on your principal if you ever need your money back, and you'll get your monthly statement with no surprises. If you are not sure if you can trust this economy, this secure collateralized portfolio may be a very good option for you. Just go to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refi.com. Folks, I take my endorsements very seriously. If you're looking for a solid investment, that helps people. Contact my friends at Wi-Fi.
and then tell them Siamai Korami sent you. Now let's go back to the interview. But to us, it sounds like nonprofits are doing good work. This is what... Some nonprofits are doing decent work. Some. Uh, unfortunately, too many of them are doing very bad work. Because you got the CEO making 800000 and they're paying kids 20 bucks an hour to hand out water bottles and croissants, and they call that outreach. And that's, that's the tragedy of this. Because it, it, in paper, it sounds great. But if you look very carefully, they're not solving anything. They just provide output. Oh, we house this many people. Or you'll hear Mayor Bass. Oh, we house 17,000 interim housing. 21,000 interim housing. And I say, I call bogus all those numbers. Because you look at all the homeless on the street, if you literally housed 21,000 on the street, you would have seen a drop of almost half within the city of LA. No, they just shuffle them around, and the ones that go in, then other ones go out. And all they're doing is they're counting output, but they're not counting the outcome, which is for every one they house, they attract one and a half to get down the street. So they're not improving anything, but the money keeps flowing in. And the money never stops. In fact, the pie gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So Alex, based on what you see, and you've dealt with some of this political machine that you mentioned, what is the root cause of this? This is a tough question, but what do you think is the root cause of this? I think greed, old-fashioned greed is the only way to explain it. Because if a nonprofit actually worked hard to get rid of homelessness, they'd get rid of themselves at the end because there's no homeless left. But the nonprofit always gets bigger and bigger, and the homeless population gets bigger and bigger. So it boils down to greed. There's a nonprofit called the Dream Center, and they're off the 101 free, the real tall building. The Dream Center is like 10 stories tall. It was a former hospital, I think, they took over. And that's a nonprofit, a religious-based nonprofit, and they house the homeless. They have a sober living uh, program, you know, for drug addiction and all that stuff. And they have a one-year immense immersion program where they get people cleaned up, free of drugs, and back up and running. And extremely successful operation. They take in entire families. That's how good this thing is. No government involvement whatsoever. Everything is by, by charity. So you have big names, the Dodger organization, Kershaw, the pitcher. He donates. In fact, uh, Justin Turner, who's not the Dodgers anymore, but he's a big donor to that. But they rely on private philanthropy to fund their entire operation. And the cost to house a family for an entire year is 25% of what it costs to house them with all the public operations. 25%. Wow. That should tell you something right there. And they have an extremely high success rate where people are not circled back and dumped on the street. They actually move on with their lives and become self-sufficient, which is their goal. Now, Alex, you have been vocal about all of this, and some people say it costs you the, the election. Why did you decide to go against this political system? Well, when I took office in 2018, and I campaigned on reform, rebuild, and restore the sheriff's department, we did exactly that. Every single thing that I campaigned on, we achieved in office. The body-worn cameras, transparency, big issue is body-worn cameras, for example. Getting the public to see all the inner workings of the department, we put everything online so people could see. 
how we discipline people, how many people get disciplined for violating policy, for example, uh, getting ICE out of the jail system, which some people say, oh, you can't do that. They're, you know, they're criminals. You, you know, they should be deported. But the point is, I understood that there has to be a separation between federal immigration enforcement and local law enforcement. You can't mix the two because we need local residents to trust local law enforcement when l their lives are on the line. But if they're afraid that it's going to be a deportation if they call 911, people are not going to call 911. No one is safer under that environment, especially when you've got a million undocumented residents in L.A. County, the highest in the entire nation. So we separated the two. It worked. Didn't drive up the crime rate at all, as some people claimed. And now at the state prison is its appropriate time for ICE to actually take people once they serve their sentence for robbery, rape, murder, carjacking, whatever. Okay, those violent crimes, yeah, they're non-citizen. Okay, see ya. And that's the appropriate time. But it doesn't involve local law enforcement, which is the whole point. That worked. We diversified the workforce. We created brand new innovative systems that allows an inclusive system, allow everyone to compete to become station captains of the patrol stations. In the past, it was a very, it was driven by patronage and nepotism. People like me never had a chance to be a station captain. In fact, I never interviewed my entire career. Wasn't allowed to. We changed all that, and we made it where every single lieutenant had the chance to interview to be a station captain. Why were you not allowed to? Because it was all political patronage. If you weren't in the car, you were never considered. I mean, I had a perfect employment history, doctorate in public administration, master's in public administration, military veteran, veteran taught at the academy, taught at Cal State Long Beach. I had the, the resume that, you say, oh my God, yeah, that person should be the director of the academy or something. Nope. Never was allowed the opportunity to interview. So when I became sheriff, I wanted to change all that. I didn't want people to go through the experiences I went through. When we changed it, all of a sudden, the leadership of the department changed as well. Because now you saw new faces that never had opportunities before in leadership positions. And it worked. That was innovative, inclusive. It honored the whole concept of equal opportunity as an employer. And you'd think that people would have been celebrating that. No, quite the opposite. People were complaining because they lost privilege. The people that were in the car before, now they had to compete with Hungry Harry. They were upset about that. So that started that whole thing with the board, hey, let's just ruin the sheriff's reputation. And I took a $101 million deficit, and I converted it into a $74 million surplus. That's a positive, right? No, I get denounced by the LA Times, I can't manage my money. Uh, there's nothing else we can do. We actually fixed, you know, the financial woes of the department. We shrunk the size of the bureaucracy, made it leaner, more effective, got more people out on the streets and patrol. We hired 1,100 deputies in one year alone. Now Luna just announced that he's hired 350. Oh, Lord Jesus, no wonder, because you have 600 plus people retiring a year and you hired 350, that means your workforce shrunk by over 250. And it's going to continue to shrink because he cannot attract people. So the fact that the, they went against me for re-election is because they are the culture of corruption. And they cannot tolerate an honest sheriff 
who's going to hold people accountable. That's what I represented. Now that I'm running for a supervisor, I represent the same thing. I want to see clean county government. I want to see them actually doing what they're supposed to be doing, providing for the health, safety, and welfare of the county, not lining the, the pockets of fat cat developers, which is what they all seem to be doing these days. Do you think a supervisor could have that much power to do because, because you're one of the five? One of the five. Well, but look, it was those same five that brought me down. And they didn't bring me down because I wasn't doing my job. They brought me down because I was doing my job. See the difference? Now, as a supervisor, I want to see the sheriff and the DA to be independent. I don't want them to have the board meddling with the inner workings of either department. They're independently elected leaders. They need to run their own departments, and the board needs to step out of the way. Fund the departments, monitor their budget, and that's it. Once they hand them over the money, it's up to them to spend the money wisely. And if they don't, well, then they suffer the consequences. But right now, the board is so involved in the inner workings. Look at how dysfunctional the DA's office is. They've lost 20% of their entire workforce is gone. Usually when you had an announcement for deputy district attorney, you get a thousand candidates because like one of the cream of the crop positions for a young lawyer out of law school is to become an LADA. They got 100 applications for 200 vacancies. 70 of them disqualified off the bat. There's 30 people left. So you have people not even vacant positions. They don't want to work with George Gascon. And you know what that's done to the crime rate. Same thing now with Luna. No one wants to work under Luna. So this is all goes back to the board. The board set the wheels in motion. When they defunded the department, the hiring freeze, all those things they did, they have consequences. Elections have consequences. And I'm hoping and praying that in 2024, people connect the dots. You put bad politicians in office, they're going to do bad things. They're going to hurt you. Stop doing that. Do you think there was a point that things shifted and some people got a lot more power? Yes, I think it was when Mark, Mark really Thomas took over and when Janice Hahn took over from, um, I think it was Don Kanabi. I think she took over from Don Kanabi. Because you had a 3-2 split on the Board of Supervisors. Two conservatives, three liberal. But when Hahn took over, Mark really Thomas got in there. Now it became a 4-1 split. Now you have supermajority, and that one was not a full one. It was more like what they call what a rhino, Republican in name only, which is Catherine Barger. So now you have an ideological group that are united, all progressive, all talking about uh, reimagining public safety and trying to downgrade and, and shrink the size of the criminal justice system entirely because they believe somehow that that's going to, they're going to free people and, you know, free the oppressed when they're actually screwing over their own community. Now, are you worried about the future of L.A. and California based oh. on what you are seeing? Right now, I'm, I'm terrified about the future of the entire state of California because you have this monolithic block of people. They call themselves progressives, but they can't stand progress. It's really weird. Because, for example, a George Floyd happened. Horrible thing. However, it's 2,000 miles away. So why were people burning down businesses in L.A. for something 2,000 miles away? And chance, we have to reform here. So we reform, and we reform. We held people accountable. To the point, 
I fired 165 people in four years and had the head of the Oversight Commission say that I have done nothing to hold people accountable. What am I supposed to do? Fire them twice? I can only fire them once. If they're involved in criminal activity, we investigate it, we refer it to the DAs, and it's up to them to charge or not. That's not my decision. That's where we're done. And we did that. We even posted that we did that. No matter what we did, and we showed the evidence, all the receipts, they'd still say we've done nothing, that we need to reform. Because the activist crowd, they never ever acknowledge that one, we're dealing with human beings. There's no such thing as perfect policing. There's always gonna be a question about, well, did he have to shoot, or could he shoot the gun out of the hand, or all these weird things. And they never acknowledge, no, that's a tough decision in tough circumstances done by a human being, not by a machine. They're not gonna always be perfect. Most of the time, they're pretty good. In fact, 99% of the time, they're good. But the 1% or the half of 1%, they're going to continue to happen no matter what you do. And they cannot accept that. Because for them, it's just an opportunity to beat up the profession because they want to get rid of law enforcement. Oh yeah, abolitionists. They want to get rid of prisons and jails. Figure that. And two classic cases that just happened was uh, East LA deputy uh, on the ground, has a guy in a headlock, they're punching the guy in the head and they're trying to arrest the guy and handcuff him, but he's flailing about. And they eventually end up to subduing him and handcuffing him and the outrage that he was an amputee. But e I even read news reports on it and they don't mention he had a nine millimeter waist loaded in his waistband, which the deputies did not want him to get his hands on. Hence the punching, then it makes sense. You never hear that anywhere, but right away, oh my God, the sheriff, they're a bunch of deputy gangs and they're never going to be reformed. They got to get rid of the sheriff's department, disband it and all this stuff. And it's again, again, no, the force is never pretty, no matter how you slice or dice it, it is never pretty. But when you see the reasons why deputies use force, they made the right decision. And imagine had they allowed the guy to get his hands on the gun. Now we have a tragedy. Either he gets shot, the deputies get shot, someone's gonna get shot if the bad guy's with a gun confronting deputies with firearms. It's not gonna end well. So for the family that wants to sue right away, they should you know, slow down and say, why is an ex-con armed in the first place? Why is he resisting arrest? Why does he have a gun in a car wash washing a car? All these questions need to be asked. They're never asked. Let's go denounce the sheriff's department. CHP gets into the shooting on the freeway. Guy running around on the freeway when he's not supposed to be with a taser, won't comply with the CHP. They get into a wrestling match, pulls out the taser. We've seen the video, the grainy video, and the cop shoots him on the freeway. Still need to investigate the whole thing, see if they have body-worn camera, what it looked like. More information needs to be known, but right away they're denouncing the, the CHP when they should have pointed at uh, actually the Board of Supervisors, the Governor, the Legislature, what have they done to provide resources for the mentally ill? This kid has been mentally ill for a long time, bipolar, they cite all these things. Okay, so what have you done for him? And it ends in a tragedy, but the tragedy is not where the CHP officers are intervened. He's a human being, he wants to go home at the end of the day. The tragedy happened that his illness was never treated when it should have been. 
And Lord knows the state budget and the county budget is huge enough. How come there's no room to treat someone like him? How come it has to end in a tragedy? That's what they should be protesting about, but they don't. They want to denounce law enforcement. Let's go sue law enforcement again. You faced this challenge for the re-election, mm -hmm. right? You decided to run again. You're running for the Board of Supervisors. Board of Supervisors. Is it challenging to be in your shoes? Because you, you have a lot of people that criticize you, right, in the political system. And then you're kind of going against your own party. How does it feel to be in your shoes? Well, I've been a lifelong Democrat. I know my opponent and the, all the establishment call me the Donald Trump of LA with zero evidence to support that other than it sounds good. When it comes down to it, I'm a lifelong member of the Sierra Club, lifelong Democrat. I've never supported a presidential race uh, Republican candidate ever. And, uh, but I have crossed the aisle on Senate and uh, assembly here in, in the state of California because I believe in balance. California is so lopsided, the legislature, where it's not really a deliberative body anymore because the supermajority Dems, they do whatever they want. They ignore the minority Republicans. And in the process, there's no give and take. There's no moderation. There's no uh, meeting of the minds to reach some middle ground that advances everyone's interest. No. It's extreme left agenda, which is harmful for the whole state. We're seeing it on homelessness. We've seen it with Prop 47. It's been an absolute disaster. It's caused the death of thousands of people. Well, people are dying. Some people need to go to jail. There's a reason why. Then they point to, oh, things are better now than back in the early 90s. Yeah, the, what got us out of the early 90s was people went to jail. Three strikes kicked in, and all of a sudden the bad actors spent a long time behind bars, and it got quieter on the streets. There's a reason for that. But now we're returning to those violent times because we're removing all the consequences to crime. Zero bail schedule, prime example, Prop 47, another one. DAs who won't prosecute. Do you think there is a chance for these people that are in power now to change what they're doing? When they start seeing their demise, they'll change. Until they see that they're, uh, they can be killed, so to speak, <laughs> politically, until they start seeing them start dropping left and right, they're not going to change their ways. Because right now, they keep getting reelected and reelected. There's no, there's no change into their, uh, in their future because they get reelected. No matter how bad they do, voters put them back in office. What's the incentive to change if you don't have to? When they, start, when they become vulnerable and realize, oh my God, there's consequence to being a bad politician, then you'll see politicians elsewhere starting to get nervous and you know, like, you know, they're gonna start cleaning up their act. But we need to chop off some heads, not literally, figuratively, in the political world to then start seeing people change course. And uh, my campaign for supervisor is just one, one piece of the puzzle. Why are so many people leaving California? It wasn't long ago, people from everywhere wanted to move to the Golden State to enjoy a better life. Sadly, the standard of living has been dropping in the past decade. Are you like me and wonder why this is happening? I'm Siamak Karami, host of California Insider. In our film, Leaving California, The Untold Story, I take you an intimate journey of love, loss, tragedy, 
and hope as residents face the prospect of leaving their beloved state. Everyday people like you tell their stories about why they have to move out of the state even though they don't want to. Experts and policymakers also give insights about what's happening behind the scenes. Together, we get to the root cause of this exodus. Go to leavingcalifornia.com to view the first 15 minutes of the film for free. By watching Leaving California, you can be part of the solution. Again, go to livingcalifornia.com. Now, what about the people? Do you think the average people are, are starting to get fed up with this political class? They're getting fed up. We're starting to see signs of it. When I put out a tweet on Monday that I turned in my paperwork for the nomination, it went viral. I, I took a picture of myself in front of the registrar's office with my back to the camera in the big building. It's kind of like the little guy against the big bureaucracy. And uh, it, it just took off. And just the comments from the people is encouraging. And they're all like, about time, go get them. Yes, we can do this. Got to change. People are fed up. The problem is these little devices, seven seconds in a swipe, that's all they get of the world. Until they trip over the body. Until they see that homeless man defecating on their front lawn until they're shopping and they see the smashing grabs or their hammers breaking the windows like it happened the San Anita Mall, until they see that with their own eyes or the experience there, their house is broken into, or they get accosted somewhere on a train or on a bus. When it happens to them personally, then they realize it, and the power of this stupid thing fades. But they have to experience it. And right now, a lot of the progressive crowd that is all for supporting all these things they're far removed from the problem. Yeah, let's get the cops off the trains because they're oppressive and they harm people of color. But you go to the train, you ask people of color, what do you want to see? And they want to say, I want to see twice as many cops because they don't talk to them. I talk to them. I know what they want. What they want to do is be safe and secure everywhere they go. And I think everybody wants the same thing. Now, Alex, is it tough to be in this position you're in because you, you are kind of standing up somewhat alone in this political class. Oh, it is, because right now the, the party, the Democratic Party that gave us John F. Kennedy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that party is long gone. It's a shadow of his former self. What used to be organized labor now are social justice activists masquerading as unions. They don't care about the membership. It's all about, hey, one cause or another, you know, you know, Black Lives Matter, defund the police, let's reimagine public safety. Hey, what about the uh, wages, pay, benefit, and, and conditions of employment of your membership? Ah, who cares about that? Let's go out there and protest on the street. See, that's, that needs to change. We need to have revive the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. We need moderates on the Republican side. We need to have those voices working, talking to each other. And that's how we solve things in the past. That's how we fought and kicked Hitler's ass in World War II. That's how we put a man on the moon. Because people came together for things that were bigger than themselves. But now politics become so petty and I've got to kill the other side because they're red or they're blue and I'm the other color and we've got to kill them. That doesn't solve anything. That doesn't address crime, doesn't address homelessness, doesn't address corruption, doesn't address that the average working person struggles just to put food on the table and they're one incident away from being either homeless or, you know, the refrigerator is empty. 
because they can't afford it. But you got someone who hires their own family to be their entire staff, well, doesn't affect them. They don't see, they don't take the, you know, the bite that the average person on the street does. Alex, if you were on this board of supervisors, mm -hmm. do you think you can have an impact as one member of the five? Oh, yes, <laughs> in many ways. And some of them are, are kind of funny, but they're so used to corruption that if you listen to them or you listen to the MTA board of directors, they don't challenge each other. They'll say the most outrageous thing is a flat-out lie. And they will just, you know, with that silly, oh, my God. And they'll thank each other profusely. Oh, thank you for your leadership. Thank you this, thank you that, while the city's on fire. And just by showing up at the board alone, they know that they better have their stuff together because I'm going to challenge everything that is wrong, factually incorrect or false, harmful to the community, harmful to the taxpayer, to the business community. I'm going to call them out. And I'm going to say, hey, no, I disagree with you for X, Y, and Z reasons. I'm not going to support that. You shouldn't be supporting that. And that's what they're dreading because I am the disruptor of corruption. Now, do you have any other thoughts for our audience? Well, the good news is, I know that with all this doom and gloom, there is some good news. We can actually shake off this current political class, kind of like a dog shakes off fleas, and start anew. We need to attract a new generation of people into public service, not just in elected office, but in, in, in law enforcement, in the health services, all these different areas in uh, social, social work, for example. We need to attract a whole new generation of people, uh, attract people to the military. Now they're having a hard time recruiting now for the military as well, for the same reason they're having a hard time recruiting for law enforcement. But we need to uh, inspire a new generation, and we can do it, because we did it in the past. And I know every generation looks at the generation that follows and kind of looks down their nose at them, yeah, you know. I walk to school in the snow uphill both ways, you know, that routine, barefoot, you know. You always get that, that but no, every generation has had challenges that previous generations didn't have. And the current generation, they have challenges, uh, financial ones that we never dreamed of because this is the first generation now, the Gen Z's coming online into the workforce, that their economic prospects are lower than their pre preceding generations. So we have to acknowledge that and say, okay, we got to start thinking things a little different. This country, the culture of serving others, is like really deeply rooted mm -hmm. in this country. You know, it's a culture of serving others, putting others first. And uh, it's apparent in a lot of different places in the society. Now it seems like we've lost this, right, in, with the political class. Is there a way to get this back? Well, we have to encourage people from across the political spectrum to get involved in public service. And you're not going to get rich in public service, and you shouldn't, And because you're there to serve others, not yourself. In the military, they have a model called service before ambition, which means you take care of other people before you take care of yourself. You know, when I was a young commissioned officer in the National Guard, I always remember I was the second to the last person to eat at the chow line out in the field. The last person was my company commander behind me. Wow. And I was the second to the last. The very first person that always ate was a private E1. 
the youngest kid, they always went first. And that literally, if you visualize it, that is service before ambition. You always put the needs of other people ahead of your own. When you do that, great things flow from that. And we have to get back to that. Because too much now, it's what's in it for me, FM. Everyone's tuned into that radio station. And um, we need people to start thinking bigger than themselves. How can we help other people? And ultimately, you end up helping yourself by default because you're improving the lives of everyone around you. And right now, there's too many people are so focused on climbing the rung in organizations and you know, padding their resumes and so worried about how they're going to appear. But how about just do your job? You know, it's not that difficult. Get the job done. And it works. And it showed when I was sheriff, that was our mantra, and it worked. We actually valued employees. And we told our executive staff, serve them because they're getting the job done. And take care of them. And oh, my God. That's how we were able to hire 1,100 deputies in one year. That kind of thinking is the leader will eat last, right? Mm -hmm. the, the leader will, will serve others. Yes. And then others are serving the public, the, the public workers. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what it comes down to, that, that servant leadership model, it applies beyond the military, it applies to any organization. But if you look in corporate America, the Fortune 500s, you see on the cover magazines, who do you see? It's always the CEO. It's always some old white guy, you know, or, uh, or female, you know, all looking all pretty and, you know, with $5,000 money suits and somehow. That's not the strength of the organization. It's a work to be on the front line, what they're doing. They're the one that won the count. They're the one that actually get the widgets made and make the profit for the organizations. I'm a firm believer in profit sharing. And look at the companies that have been very successful, usually involve profit sharing. Hewlett Packard, Home Depot, for example, two prime examples that, wow, you know, you join those organizations, you make a living, and you also help yourself in the same way. And the leaders will benefit in the long run. And it's not do. a short term. No, because they see their stock value increase as well because the value of the entire organization increases. Uh, just another example, my it goes back to food. Always around, revolves around food, I don't know why. But in 2019, my first year as sheriff, there is an annual sheriff's luncheon. So historically, they used to call it blessing of the animals because this is where the sheriff uh, had lunch with the executive staff and then the command staff of all the divisions and bureaus within the department. So the captains would show up with a captain secretary and just the staff, the operations, but not the line staff would never go. They wouldn't be caught dead in this thing. And that was every year. So we said, you know, we're going to do it different. This can be an employee appreciation luncheon. And we held it at uh, the Pacific Palms, the industrial or the equestrian center in industry. We had over 800 people reserved, which is unheard of. Because this lunch is usually like 100, 200 people tops. No, we had 800 people reserved. 1,200 showed up. And we had six food stations with Lascaris. They were the, we, uh, they catered the event. We paid for it. And the employees were the ones who were honored. And the ones who bust the tables and served the drink was the executive staff. In fact, my undersheriff started busting the tables and all was over. And as soon as he started, and you know, four stars on his collar, 
all the other chiefs said, uh, maybe I should do it too. And it was kind of funny <laughs> oh, to see. Oh, that's awesome. And, but the reaction from the employees was priceless. We had uh, secretaries, clerks, we had law enforcement technicians and deputies, tears in their eyes, like, oh my God, in my entire career, I've never seen this. Thank you so much for doing this. And that is just flipping it upside down and putting what matters the most, which is your line staff, front and center. The people that are doing the hard work and yep. they probably get paid less and acknowledged. Oh, they get paid a lot less and they're often forgotten, but they're the ones that get the job done. And if we don't recognize that and honor them and support them, as a leader, one, you're stupid and you're not going to be a leader for long. Alex Villanueva, former LA County Sheriff, it was great to have you on California Insider. Oh, love to be here. Thank you, Siamek. If you haven't checked out CaliforniaInsider.com, we highly recommend you do that now because we're going to have a lot of news and videos there. And on top of what we have there right now, we're building a really big platform to cover what's happening in California. So you can be informed. We're going to have more shows, more videos from all aspects of life in California. Go to CaliforniaInsider.com and we'll see you there.